Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. This is The Guardian. The PM concedes that a US-UK trade deal isn't coming anytime soon. Is this just another post-Brexit broken promise? I'm Rowena Mason, Deputy Political Editor for The Guardian, and this is Politics Weekly. Mr President, is, uh, is Britain still at the back of the queue for a trade deal, uh, a free trade deal, as your predecessor, President Obama, promised? Is it all the Brexit free trade? Well, we're, we're going to talk about trade a little bit today, and uh, we're going to have to work that through. Let me just say, on, on that, Harry, I mean, don't forget, folks, that we... Boris Johnson is delighted to be back out and about. His trip to the US has been long overdue and his schedule is jam-packed. One thing he won't be able to tick off his list this time is securing a trade deal with the US. But does that mean his trip was a failure? Some good news coming out of the US. Biden has promised to spend more to combat climate change and fully vaccinated UK citizens will soon be able to travel over to the States, which the PM hopes will boost trade. But something that didn't help trade in many industries this week was an energy crisis. Ministers warned that rising gas prices could lead to a very tough winter for some. So what's the solution? That's all in this week's Politics Weekly. But first, I caught up with my colleague, The Guardian's political editor, Heather Stewart. Heather has been on the ground following Boris Johnson since he landed in the US. Now, Heather, you're chatting to me from Washington. Is that right? You've been all over the place, haven't you, this morning? <laughs> yes. M- Monday, New York, Tuesday, Washington. And, and um, I've woken up in, in Washington this morning, but then it's back to New York this afternoon and then back to London overnight. So um, it's, um, it's one of those crazy trips. Gosh. And uh, am I right in thinking that you were on the same flight and the same train as the Prime Minister as he's been dashing about the US? Yes, indeed. It's the first time this has happened since pre-COVID, I think. But um, Prime Minister travels with a sort of pack of reporters and we uh, obviously we're not with him all the time but um, there are moments when we can sort of fire questions at him and you know see what mood he's in and watch him up close and and all that sort of thing and in fact yesterday uh, we went into the we were able to go briefly into the at the Oval Office at the White House where he was meeting Joe Biden and fire a few questions at well two questions at them before they disappeared off for their private talk so it's it's been really interesting and it's been a chance to see the prime minister up close in a way that we don't that often get he certainly does look thrilled to be out and about again though doesn't he doing what a prime minister should be doing shaking hands and meeting other leaders on the world stage he absolutely loves it that's definitely true and i think he's you know we know that he really pushed hard for 
working from home guidance to be lifted and talks a lot about how he thinks everyone should be back in the office. And I think that's probably because he's one of those people. I mean, journalists are a bit like this too, I think probably, who sort of thrives on on personal contact in a way that's quite difficult to get through a screen. And I think that was one of the reasons they wanted to do this trip. I think you know, the sense over the summer when the Afghanistan crisis was going on that, that was that the, the government just hadn't really done the groundwork and built up the rapport that it needed with key figures in the US to, to be able to be kept up to date and to know what was going on and to be able to be sort of persuasive. And so not only is he meeting Biden, but he's seeing Nancy Pelosi today. He's seeing the leaders of the House. He's seeing the leaders of, of the Senate. So he's really doing a bit of a tour and trying to get some sort of face time with these very important figures. And, and there are lots of issues they want to talk about. So I, I think probably they feel these things are much easier to do in sort of face-to-face face-to-face meetings. And, and we'll hope that that you know, figures here will be left with a better understanding of of how the government's thinking about some of these things. Do you think it helped that he could kind of ignore what was going on in the UK, even for a few days? Yeah, I think that's always a sort of sweet relief for prime ministers, isn't it, probably, who have these sort of domestic troubles crossing their desks the whole time. But yes, I think while he's here, you know, much of what he's been talking about is climate change. He's He really wants COP26 to be successful in November. We didn't really hear a great deal from the prime minister about climate, I think, for quite a long time. But since he's been here, he's really, really sort of banging the drum and saying this is a very important historic moment. And Alok Sharma's out here too, the COP26 chair, meeting individual countries and really you know, trying to put the, the, put the screws on them a bit, it's probably a great relief to be able to sort of ignore the domestic concerns and, and think about some of these bigger, broader global issues. And how about Liz Truss? This is her first outing since becoming Foreign Secretary in the reshuffle last week. She looks pretty cock-a-hoop as well. Oh, I think she really is. Yeah, she came to have a bit of a chat with us on the train yesterday. She travelled to Washington. She met Biden and she met Kamala Harris with the Prime Minister. So she's part of his delegation, um, you know, up until... Last week, she wouldn't even known she was coming at all. You know, she came to chat to us and gave us a little sense of what she wants to do with the job. She's already got a very clear idea. She wants to link trade more closely, she said, with sort of global security and our interests in the world. So she's having a very, very busy time and and reading herself into the the new role quite quickly. And then... Boris Johnson also got a somewhat surprising boost at the beginning of the trip when the Biden administration announced that fully vaccinated travellers from the UK would be able to go to the US from early November. But Johnson can't really call it his win, can he? He really can't. So so um, again, chatting to him on the plane, he was saying this was something they were absolutely going to press the White House about. In fact, they were suggesting he was going to press Biden about it when they met. Well, of course, the announcement then came on Monday that the ban was being lifted. And the UK has been telling us repeatedly over recent months, don't worry, there's a there's a very there's a great travel task force working on this. Well, of course, the ban was lifted on Monday, but it was lifted for scores of countries, you know, all of which will get exactly the same regime. And in fact, the UK government were left with quite a lot of questions to, to ask, you know, they weren't quite sure whether AstraZeneca vaccinations would be accepted. They weren't quite sure if children would be exempted. I mean, to be fair, I think many people in the US were blindsided by the announcement too. But certainly the UK um, were completely blindsided by it, weren't expecting it, or they were ticked off just before it came, I think, rather than anything else. And so it, yeah, I think they would have loved to claim that as a victory of their trip. But it's um, it would be stretching credibility very thin if they tried to do so, I think. He did have one other job to do, though, didn't he, which was trying to convince the world's richest leaders that they needed to cough up at the UN General Assembly um, on uh, the issue of climate change. And he had some fairly strong words about that, didn't he? What, what did you make of his speech? 
Yeah, so he was he was stressing very strongly um, the argument that developed countries in the first place polluted the world. You know, we had the Industrial Revolution, he was saying, and, you know, it was us who, who chucked all this carbon into the atmosphere in the first place for sort of 200 years. So we have a responsibility, we as, as rich countries have a responsibility to help poor countries manage the situation, both, both by helping them to transition to clean technologies and also helping them manage the sort of catastrophic weather events you get. And it's, it's the moment when we have to to grow up and take our responsibilities. I think we go through, uh, you know, a period of, uh, of, of, of glorious uh, indifference about the, the world. We've been through that. We've been through our, our childhood, if you like. Uh, we now got to realize that uh, this, is a, this is a problem that requires uh, grip and... and you know, it was, a, it was a sort of moral argument and it was sort of strongly put, but I think now is absolutely the moment to make it with, with only weeks to go before COP26. And actually, we've seen some really good progress on this that this week so the US has doubled its contributions to 11.2 billion to this to this 100 billion that developed countries have been promising in climate financing for a long time and have never actually stumped up or haven't stumped up all of it Johnson was able to um, firmly welcome yesterday when he saw Biden that they are definitely absolutely aligned on this and wanting to to get this situation sorted out and also China announced yesterday that they that they're going to phase out coal power so again that was a really really big step. So it, there, there is a sense here, I think, that perhaps finally countries are starting to sort of realise that this is the moment. There were lots of laggards, of course, but I think they will go home thinking, yes, OK, perhaps there's a bit more prospect of COP26 being a success than we, than we might have thought. And Johnson has met lots of people on this trip so far, including Jeff Bezos of Amazon and Bolsonaro, the Brazilian president. But diplomats from one country seemed keen to avoid Johnson. How have things gone with the French this week, Heather? Just remind us what happened there. Well, I have to say we have not seen the French. So President Macron is not here, but although I think he wasn't due to be here anyway. Um, but certainly, um, I don't think Liz, um, no, I'm sure Liz Truss hasn't seen her French counterpart. And of course, there's a, the most uh, um, almighty diplomatic spat going on since we signed this AUKUS deal with the US and Australia. So Boris Johnson spent yesterday evening having dinner with Scott Morrison, SCOMO, the, the uh, Australian Prime Minister, um, and uh, certainly not checking in with his with his French counterpart. The French have tried to portray portray us as what they call the fifth wheel. So they're furious with the uh, Americans. They're furious with the Australians. They've withdrawn their ambassadors from both of those countries for consultation, and they've sort of let, pointedly left us out, suggesting that you know they're angry, but we're we're sort of not important enough, or you know not key players enough to be to, to bother to uh, to insult us. The big meeting here, though, is definitely the trip to the White House. Were you with him when he actually met the president? Well, so we were ushered in for a very few minutes into the Oval Office in a very crowded sort of huddle. They call it a spray in the US. So you're all sort of jostling each other and the photographers are jostling each other to try and get the best shot. Um, There's TV cameras in there as well. And you're all sort of standing around this, you know, what looks like somebody's sort of drawing room. It's a very odd situation. Um, and they, you know, they gave a short statement. Joe Biden told a, a long rambling anecdote about how many miles he'd travelled on the Amtrak train, which apparently reading afterwards, he tells quite a lot. And then they answered a couple of questions. And uh, it, just in those couple of questions, Joe Biden reiterated, sort of underlined his concerns about Ireland and how important he thinks the Northern Ireland, um, it, it is that the Northern Ireland peace deal is not undermined in any way. So that was quite interesting and, and, and said that his Republican counterparts would absolutely agree with that. I think there's a real sort of tr- trying to, to showcase how well they get on really but it's having said that you didn't really get a sense of personal rapport you know you often get with Boris Johnson he can be quite good at face-to-face relations with people and and 
you sometimes get the sense that he's charmed someone. And I was not getting that from the body language. We were only there in there for a few minutes, but I didn't really get the sense that they were kind of joking together or, you know, had sort of found some points in contact, as, as, which, you, which you sometimes do when you see two leaders together, don't you? It's funny, isn't it, that last month the British Parliament was denouncing Biden for the way he took troops out of Afghanistan. But now Johnson is bound to be excited to meet the president um, in office for the in in his own office for the first time. Do you know if they spoke about Afghanistan? Yeah. So we we all we've had is a sort of official readout afterwards. But yes, they did they did talk about Afghanistan, and interestingly, the, the readout said something about you know whether and how to recognise the Taliban, um, which obviously is 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 the big issue faced by the world at the moment. Is is how do you deal with this new government you know to what extent do you sort of accept its status and what happens about aid to the country and so on so yes they did talk about that I mean I suspect probably the less said the better about the botched withdrawal in the summer I can't imagine they raked over that that wouldn't seem to be a particularly good uh, uh, topic of conversation and actually um, Johnson did an NBC interview earlier in the week and um, that was the question are you frustrated that the U.S. withdrawal was so botched, frankly? I think that it was a massive logistical success, what they did. We, You're being we had quite a big, easy come, easy go about it, but you, you heard about it. So, so Afghanistan is playing very, very big here in the media. And that was the question that was put to him over and over again. Mm. And Johnson and Biden were full of nice anecdotes for each other, yet this historically special relationship couldn't muster up even a plan for a trade deal between the two nations. It's just not Biden's priority, is it, Heather? Of course. I mean, what's so ironic about this whole um, discussion about a bilateral trade deal is, of course, as you remember, uh, Biden was vice president when Obama came over to the UK and said, if you leave the EU, you'll be at the back of the queue for a, a trade deal, pro- prompting the prime minister to, uh, who was mayor of London at, time, at the time, to write that column saying, you know, was it because Obama was part Kenyan, which, um, you know, of course, really didn't go down very well over here and didn't go down very well, we know, indeed, with, with Biden. So it's a sort of funny, um, it's sort of come full circle in a sense. But Boris Johnson did used to suggest that a deal with the US would be easy and it would be quick and it would be a great win. And he used to go around talking about Melton Mowbray pork pies and all kinds of other things that uh, British exporters would be able to sell here. Yeah, so how, how is this admission from Johnson um, that there probably won't be a trade deal anytime soon likely to play at home? It's just basically another post-Brexit promise broken, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. And it, it, it was just a completely unrealistic idea that we were going to be able to um, strike a quick deal with the, with the US. It would be incredibly complicated. There's very, there'll be very full issues around farm goods, around services in the public sector, for example. It doesn't seem to be anywhere near within reach. And do you think Johnson will see this as a successful trip? I think to the extent that he'll think it's a success, it'll be in intangible things, in a sort of warmth of relationship that he will hope that he's established or a little, at least a little bit more understanding. Uh, and, and he will have hoped to have given a sense that he's not uh, Britain Trump, as Biden's predecessor used to call him. And as I, as I think quite a few Americans probably kind of think of him as a bit of a mini Trump. And he will, of course, have wanted to stress that you know, there are other values and things that we have in common with the with the states. And that's, you know, that's a sort of misunderstanding of him, really. But yeah, in, t- in terms of um, tangible wins, very hard to point to any, it has to be said. So it's um, perhaps as, not quite as, as much of a slam dunk as they might have hoped. Heather Stewart, thanks for joining me from the US. Thanks, Rowena. After the break, Larry Elliott and Torsten Bell talk about the politics of the energy crisis in the UK. We'll be right back. 
When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. Welcome back to Politics Weekly. I'm Rowena Mason. The headlines earlier this week were awash with rising energy prices, which has many concerned about the coming winter months. Up until yesterday, there were fears that there wouldn't be enough carbon dioxide for the food production industry, which could have led to shortages in things like fizzy drinks and meat on the shelves. To understand the real impact of this situation, I spoke to Larry Elliott, The Guardian's economics editor, and Torsten Bell, chief executive of the Resolution Foundation. So, Larry, we started to see over the weekend that energy prices were rising pretty sharply. Wholesale gas prices are now more than five times their level two years ago, raising the prospect that household bills could rise by 12% next month. Seemed to surprise a lot of people, but can you actually tell us, are we in the middle of an energy crisis? I don't think it's quite back to the bad days of the 1970s when the lights went out and we were doing, well, I was doing my homework by candlelight. But it's it's not it's not great because um, bills are going up at a, at the time when uh, inflation is already already quite high and living standards are going to be quite badly hit by this um, and you know, the government ministers know that there's a very very bumpy three or four months ahead. The energy price spike is probably the last thing the government wanted at this time. So what's happened? What's triggered this in in the the spike in the global gas price? Well, the, the demand for gas is going up because the global economy is recovering from the COVID crisis that we had last year. So demand is going up very, very strongly, particularly from Asian countries. So they're actually putting in big orders for gas. The Russians, who could supply more to the to Western Europe, are playing hardball uh, and are not supplying more gas. So those are two big factors uh, which are being compounded by a whole bunch of UK-specific factors. Our own gas supply from the North Sea is going down. The stocks are diminishing fast. There is a, there is a connector which brings in electricity from France, which, has been, which is down because of a fire. Normally, you could rely on some backup from, from wind power and solar power, but it's been a particularly dull and wind-free few months. So all those things together uh, and you've, you've you've got a real problem on your hands and so uh, for a for a combination of global and domestic factors energy supplies uh, are being limited and the price is going up very very sharply how much can we blame the uk government for this do you think larry ed miliband was quick to point out to mp's on monday that this crisis didn't come out of nowhere the fact is that we do look a bit 
underprepared uh, and not really ready for this sort of crisis. I mean, if, if you think about some of the other European countries, the French have got nuclear power to, as their backup. The Germans are still using coal. The Italians have got very, very extensive stocks of, of gas. Uh, and we've really just relied on on the market. It doesn't really matter whether the government's totally to blame or not. It is going to suffer if the shops start running out of food and as gas bills and electricity bills go up over the coming months, the government of the day is going to carry the can in a way that the Labour government uh, carried the can for the financial crisis of 2008-9. It doesn't really matter that much how how you apportion the blame. Someone is going to get blamed for it and it's going to be the government, I think. So let's break down what this crisis means um, with the energy companies themselves because some in particular, the smaller ones, are in quite a lot of trouble, aren't they? How many do you think will uh, will go under this winter? Well, there were 70 companies at the start of uh, of the year. I'd be surprised if if more than 20 get through this. The, the cost of the gas that they are getting from the wholesale market is not is, is just not covering their covering their costs. They're making huge losses, so they're going to go out of business, um, leaving just the bigger, more established companies controlling the market which is what which is what exactly what the government set up the competition to to avoid you know 7 or 8 years ago and it, is this to do with the the energy price cap that's been imposed by the government that uh, some of the smaller companies can't afford to keep prices below that level. That's right. I mean, they can't. And uh, uh, the, the energy price, I think the energy price cap is just under £1,300. Um, and it, the, the, for some of the smaller companies, it's just not feasible for them to supply at that price, given what's happening to the wholesale prices. Torsten, we've talked about the big energy companies and the industries that might be affected, but the real potential loser in this is going to be us, the consumer, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, in the end, households and their living standards is what we should all be most focused on. And we've got about 10 days until we start to see these price rises that, as Larry's been talking about, are already having effects on industry feeding into big impacts on household energy bills. Because from the 1st of October, we'll see the price cap that determines the rates of lots of our home electricity and gas going up. Uh, and that's been... Coming for a while, we've known that, but it will become a reality on the 1st of October. And there's a question here really about whether people are going to be able to afford uh, to be able to heat their homes this winter and and maybe even have to choose between the food that they put under the table and turning the heating on. Do you think it is going to be that serious? For lower income households, they're about to see very significant cuts to their incomes when the £20 uplift to the universal credit benefit system comes to an end a few days after around the 6th of October, so a few days after the increase in energy bills. So it's going to be a really tough autumn for the country as a whole, but it's going to be a, you know, a really bad cost of living crunch for low-income Britain. Mm. And at the moment, inflation is, as predicted, going up. Uh, this will hopefully level off at some point, but will the cost of living come back down again with it, do you think? The Bank of England certainly thinks, Rowena, that the increase in inflation is going to be temporary. Uh, it's expecting inflation to peak at around... There's no guarantees that they will remain as uh, relaxed about inflation um, as they currently are, although I expect inflation to come down quite sharply um, after it it goes up uh, quite, quite strongly in the last few months of this year. 
Mm. And just picking up on that word relax, that that is probably the way I would describe Kwasi Kwarte, how Kwasi Kwarteng's been sounding about it in the past few days. He's been um, denying that there is any sort of energy crisis. He's been saying there's absolutely no question of the lights going out um, and consumers will be absolutely fine because this energy price cap is remaining in place. Although he has warned that this could be a very tricky winter for some people. So what exactly do you think he's been able to do over the past uh, few days, Larry? Do you think he's done enough to stop uh, consumers suffering? I think I think he, he's tried to tread a very, very fine line between sounding complacent and sounding alarmist. I mean, I think most of what he's doing is with the industry is it, rather than with consumers. I think the government assumes that the price cap, even though it's going up a bit, will protect most consumers. And I think that what he... What he's trying to do is find a way of ensuring that the the customers who get uh, pushed on from the companies that go bust to other to other suppliers do so at a price that um, is manageable. Quasi Quartang, I think, is looking at things like uh, loan guarantees and probably direct government support for companies, and and, and is hoping that that will actually mitigate the worst of this. Consumers are going to feel the pinch, but they are protected a bit by the price cap. Torsten, you know, we're back in territory of the government discussing um, possible ways to bail out the energy companies even, although um, Kwasi Kwarteng has said that that's something that he wants to avoid. What about just nationalising those companies then? Is that something that you think uh, the government would ever consider? After all, they've they've partly done it for the railways and um, some on the left would, would like to see um, Labour adopt that policy as well. Yeah, I, I don't think the government will want to be seen to be bailing out companies that have made commercially bad decisions in any way, whether that means nationalising them or, or doing anything else that would look as though it was it, it was going soft on them. I mean, I think that the, over the last 18 months, the government has moved quite a long way away from free market principles. But I think that this would perhaps be something that the even even the new modern model conservative party would 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 balk at so i think that in the, in the short term they will look at alternatives such as subsidies soft loans and just getting the bigger more established companies to take over the customers of the ones that are failing i think that that's a much more likely way of doing it and then they will worry about some of the longer term consequences of that i.e. that you get back to where we were you know, 10 years ago with the market being dominated by a handful of big firms, they will deal with that problem further down the road. Torsten, what do you think about whether there's any upside for Labour in um, taking on a, a nationalising the energy company's policy? I, mean, I think I, I think it's basically not relevant because the firms we're talking about here, the smaller firms that are going bust, are, are massively the ones you'd want to be nationalising. I mean, there are some large-ish suppliers at risk. You'll have heard about Bulb, which is a large-ish supplier. Uh, but I basically agree with Larry that the government isn't going to be interested in anything that is in that kind of ballpark. And in all of this, it's important not to ignore that we're dealing with one crisis on top of another, the climate emergency. Larry, do you think this situation with energy is likely to change the government's thinking when it comes to approaching the climate emergency? My The honest answer is I, I don't know. I think that there will be some parts of the Conservative Party which will say um, we are going far too fast down the zero carbon route and we need to take stock of whether we are in a position to 
to go down that route um, as quickly as, as as some of the scientists say. I mean, I think that you know that, that this this current crisis has exposed just how ill-prepared Britain really is for making that transition. The government talks a lot about how it's going to seamlessly make the transition from a fossil fuel economy to a renewables economy. And this has shown beyond a shadow of a doubt just how many bumps in the road, serious bumps in the road there are to that policy. I think that, you know, it'd be kind of ironic if the if the government's uh, COP26 conference in Glasgow at the start of November was dominated by blackouts and energy crises. Yeah, we are fa- we are facing a very tough winter um, and I think the, the the government will do what the government tends to do, which is to try and ride out the crisis as best it can. Larry Elliott and Torsten Bell, thanks for joining us on Politics Weekly. Thanks so much, Rowena. Thanks for having us, Rowena. And that's all from us this week. Make sure to listen to Friday's episode of Politics Weekly Extra to hear Jonathan Friedland's conversation with Dr. Leslie Vinjamuri. The pair discussed Joe Biden's image to the world after he gave his first speech to the UN as US president. But for now, I want to thank our guests, Heather Stewart, Larry Elliott and Torsten Bell. The producer is Hattie Moyer. I'm Rowena Mason. Look after yourselves and thanks for listening. This is The Guardian. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive set of offers. 15178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models and dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark.